195. And it says the following. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. And we will stop there to examine these verses, and in particular, of course, verse 6. You might have noticed verse 6, God is referred to there as, in the Hebrew, Yahweh Osenu, Yahweh Osenu, the Lord, our Maker. It's translated with that Lord in all caps, as you know, which every time you see it in your English Bible, you're looking at that special name, Yahweh. So let's take a look here for a few minutes at what is meant by this special name. All these different names we look at, constructions built around names of God, Either El something, God, this or that, like last week, you know, El Olam, the eternal God, God everlasting. And then this week now, Yahweh, that other name, and another attribute, another thing we know about God, which is that God is, among so many other things, God is your maker. People say it sometimes, talk about, you're going to meet your maker, sort of jokingly. But the fact is, that's, that is good theology, because God is, in fact, your maker, and the maker of everything, everything you see. Everything you've ever seen, everything you've ever discovered and known about or witnessed in your life, everything that's ever made you say, whoa, or struck you with any sense of wonder or awe, it's a thing God made. In every case, Yahweh Osenu, and that is what it looks like. The God that is revealed in the Bible is omnipotent, meaning he has the ability to do anything. So that God's power has no limits. Your power has quite a few limits, does it not? Our power is, uh, I mean, its if you think about it, it seems like more limits than none. I mean, we're so very, totally, completely limited in so many ways. Our power is minuscule. But God's power, by contrast, absolutely limitless. God can do anything. Anything that is logically possible as the theologians say it I say logically possible that's the traditional way of saying it simply because of the fact that someone will say something like well can God make a married bachelor which is a tricky uh, a tricky way to attempt to sort of find a thing God can't do but that's simply logically problematic the only sense in which God can't do that is God can't do the nonsensical because it's nonsensical. But anything that is 
logically possible, God can do. And one of the things God can do, and this is sort of this is a biggie, this is as big a thing as you could sort of think about, is that God can, from scratch, make an entire universe. We have the empirical evidence that he can do such a thing. On account of look around. And here we are. Because he's done that, in fact. Could he do that again? Sure. Could he do it a million times? Sure. That's logically possible, therefore God can do that. Could he have made universes before? He could have, if you want. He hasn't said anything about that. But he could. Now listen, this is a level of power that wasn't necessarily understood or known even among other gods. Israel's neighbors had gods that they worshipped and bowed to and offered things to. But, you know, their gods were thought to be powerful, more powerful than people, you know. But not necessarily like this, on the, on the Yahweh scale of power. Because often people would naturally worship things in nature, great and mighty and, you know, incredible and awe-inspiring things. And aren't there things like that in the world? Aren't there things that just... Uh, you know, kind of make the jaw drop sometimes, and make you think, wowzers, that is amazing. All kinds of things like that. And of course, it's natural to have that response. That's normal to be in awe. It's not abnormal at all. That's why when you see people, pagan cultures, and they look at the stars, and they look at the moon, and they look at the sun, and they look at the, high, the great mountains, and they look at the vastness of the sea, and they look at the, you know, the creatures, and some of the more majestic ones, and they look at the lion, and the eagle, and, the, and they want to worship those things, or those things symbolize God. You shouldn't say, well, that's weird. Why would they do that? It is not weird. Apart from any extra revelation, it is in your nature to be inclined toward those things that evoke that kind of thing in you. So really, paganism is is a default norm based on who we are and what we're like. We are made to sort of be struck with awe, and we're made to worship. So if you know of nothing else to worship, you will find and worship those things that are great. Those things that inspire your awe, that make you feel small. And those are often found in nature. And when they're not found in nature, sometimes they are found in human form where somebody is exalted to such a position, like a super-duper great king or emperor in some places and in the ancient world would be looked at as gods. The Pharaoh received that kind of worship. Even though he's just a man, They, the, the lore and the sort of the... Uh, the, the teaching from childhood was that he's greater than any man. And just all that power that he held evoked awe. I mean, so if he walked among people, they were struck with it. Maybe in a similar way to that sometimes people get starstruck. You know, you notice that somebody comes around and, you know, they're sort of famous and people are nervous and they think, oh, no, look, there he is. It's him. It's him. Oh, my gosh. You know, people faint and all that. And that's just some. It's just because they're recognizable from TV. Now imagine if you're raised from childhood to think that that person is a god, is, is godlike or something. Well, then you fall on your face. So people can do that. In fact, people can even worship 
a great state that's not just one monarch, but just the powerful machinery of the state. There's so many things people will look to to make their gods and to worship. That's why idolatry is our is our natural mode, because we want to worship. Israel's neighbors would look out at the world and look at and they would be struck with these kind of feelings and these inclinations, and they would worship. And what Israel's response to that was, first and foremost, well, here is the God of the universe, and guess what? The thing that inspires you that way, that makes you write the poems and the hymns to and give the sacrifices, our God, the one true God, He made that. That's how great He is. He made that. That thing that makes you quiver and causes you to say, wow, it's amazing. He made that thing. And that is His greatness, that He made that thing. Well, here's another psalm to give us a little more. And I think I put this one up for you. 104. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. You notice the psalmist is good at, good at this. How manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. And there go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. And then later saying in verse 31, May the glory of Yahweh endure forever, and may Yahweh rejoice in His works. Why, it's almost as if, the psalmist is saying, that God made a vast and diverse world for His pleasure. Just because He wanted to. He rejoices in it. It gives him pleasure. You know, you know, uh, guys sometimes have big seashell collections. And God could rightly say, he could rightly brag that he has, you know, the biggest seashell collection that he keeps scattered abroad on various islands and, you know, miles and miles of coastline all around the world. Behold my seashell collection. Bigger than yours. Owner of the cattle on a thousand hills can make any Texas rancher real jealous because God just has full-scale ownership of all things and takes his own kind of delight in those things. To watch the whale play, you know, uh, gives him a kind of pleasure. There's a praise that, that the natural world gives up in its own unique way. All of the different things we witness are sort of like the natural world's way of giving its worship back to God. The arms of the great oak reach out, lift it up to heaven, you know, because the sun God gives to shine on it and the rain he allows to fall on it and it lifts its arms up in a great blessing for its maker. The natural world knows how automatically to give its worship. And the psalmist, you know, says all this, talking about, all oh, the great things, all the creatures. And, you know, the psalmist hadn't even seen, uh, you know, hadn't even seen uh, the BBC's Earth uh, series or you know any of those really cool uh, things we have now where, you know, you can see that stuff better than you ever used to. Now, when we were young, a lot of us, we thought it was fun to turn on the TV and watch Wild Kingdom and stuff. Huh? Any of you guys ever watch 
was Mutual of Omaha as Wild Kingdom, wasn't it? And there was that guy with the beard that had Wild America. Remember that guy? He had that beard and he'd talk about... He, I loved his voice. What was his name? Marty something? <laughs> what was it again, David? Stauffer. Good memory. He'd say, I'm Marty Stauffer. And this is our Wild America. You know? I love that. But see, we enjoyed watching that stuff on TVs that would make the kids make give them a headache. I mean, the kids would be disgusted to see the TVs. Like, oh, you watched that? My watch has a better screen than that. Are you kidding me? That curved screen, those that's terrible. Not low quality. Well now, you know, on big old plasma screens shot in this beautiful footage with these cameras, you you feel like you're swimming out there with the creatures. There's up there's so you see every every cut on their flesh, you know, you can almost kind of feel whether they're fuzzy or whether they're like it's like every scale. It's amazing. It's amazing. Everywhere we look in the world, we see the handiwork of the Lord our Maker. Creation is fundamental to the worldview of the Bible. Creation. Now this next slide I stole from me. I made this in some message long, long ago. And I recycled it. Sometimes students ask, oh, I get in trouble if I plagiarize myself. I get that email sometimes from students because I, you know, do I have to cite myself? Anyway, that's a whole conversation. But I do it. Here I am giving myself full credit, though. See, belief in creation. We certainly believe in creation. It's an uncompromising belief. I think, by the way, most of the people around the world have always by default been in some form or another creationist. That is to say, whatever their mythologies from ancient times onward, people have generally not thought that it is a blind process operating on the laws of chance that have you know that have gotten us here. And I would say the belief in creation is intuitive, as the Bible indicates, Romans chapter one there, that God's invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Which is to say that common sense seems to tell almost all people when they look around the world, man, something and someone has to be responsible for all of this. This all could not have just brought itself about. It's too complex. It's too amazing. For that to be the case, there's something just fundamental and intuitive about it. I'm telling you, it takes a lot of educational indoctrination to beat that out of you. It takes a lot of people who think they're real smart to actually just completely wrench that out of your mind. And I still think you probably carry it with you. It's, It's hard to get that out, to get the basic intuitive sense out of people, though we certainly try. But it's intuitive. It's logical. That's why it's so intuitive. So the writer of Hebrews says, Every house is built by someone, and God is the builder of everything. There was a bishop years ago, a couple hundred years ago, an Anglican bishop, and he wrote a thing where he examined this. He was also kind of a scientist too. He studied all these, and he, he wrote a thing 
And he, he, he began this famous work by saying, suppose in crossing a heath, because that's kind of how an Englishman would talk, suppose in crossing a heath, I stumbled upon a stone, just a stone. I picked it up and I looked at the stone. And he said, what if I wondered to myself, why, who made the stone? How did such a thing get here? And he says, his name was Paley, William Paley. He said, yeah, that would seem like an odd question, wouldn't it? It would seem like a weird question because of the fact that you would say to me, dude, he didn't say it this way, dude, it's just a stone. I mean, look, there's a lot of rocks around me. What are you talking about? How did this, somebody lose a stone? Huh? Anyone? Better take this to the lost and found. Someone might be looking for this one later. Now, James collects stones for some weird reason. I don't know why, but you know, most people don't. Uh, most people just look around and they're like, hey, rocks. Yay. You know, I mean, it's not anything that would provoke you to wonder how did this get here and who made this. But, and here's the payoff of Paley's analogy. But he says, suppose in crossing that same heath, I find a watch upon the ground, a timepiece, and I pick that up. And let's, you could even suppose I've never seen such a thing. Let's say I live in the ancient times. I don't even know what a watch is. But he said, will I say the same thing? Will I just look at it the way I would look at a stone and say, yeah, 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 yeah throw it over my shoulder? No, he said, when I see that, my mind's going to start racing. I'm going to wonder, what is this? And I am going to intuitively and immediately and undoubtedly think, somebody made this. It's complex. It has tiny moving parts, all arranged and fashioned for a purpose, to accomplish a task. And all of them have to work just right. They all have to be functioning properly for it to do its thing. And of course, you know what Paley is getting at. His analogy he's saying to us, when I look at the natural world, and I look across all of it, do I just see a bunch of stones? No. I see innumerable objects of infinitesimal, careful design with teeny, tiny parts. And the closer we look and the better our telescopes get, the more parts we see, smaller, working even more amazingly, all together. And if they didn't work that way, and if some of them didn't function right, like none of it would work. And so, it's logical. And of course, as Paley is indicating, my third point, it's scientific. It is perfectly scientific. There's long been a thing, when I was a kid, I would hear this sometimes growing up, well, you've got all you Christians on this side. And all the scientists on this side. And it's a royal showdown between the faith and the science. Coming, butting heads. Faith versus science. That's just not how this goes. That's not, what, that's, that's not the issue here. What it really is, is belief system versus belief system. Worldview clash with worldview. The science is the same. We're looking, we're looking at the human cell and how it's run like a like a tiny factory with all kinds of stuff going on, like a city operating. We're looking at that just like they're looking at that. And so it's not about this is not about the science. And I could line up I could line up for a mile long scientists accomplished. 
prominent who would all tell you that there ain't no way that when they look at the things they study, there's no way they don't see intelligence at work. As the quote here from this great Nobel winner here, I could line up more of them. Prominent. Well, how come I? I haven't heard of all these guys. Yeah, maybe you haven't. Their beliefs don't uh, don't really catapult them quite as strongly to the forefront. Can I tell you, though, that even some of those who do have the accepted secular position, point of view, who do get platforms to speak, they're the ones that, you know, when Time Magazine writes a piece about a scientific thing, they go to them because they have the views that they like. They'll, they'll avoid a guy like this guy, of course. But even some of those people, there are quotes by some of them that are pretty telling, that will say things like, well, you know, I have speculated the possibility of superintelligent extraterrestrial beings who very well may have visited here millions of years ago in order to seed life as a laboratory experiment. And they will they will proffer these bizarre theories. And what, what is making them do that? Why would they say that? Because they see what we see. And the, the intuition, the logic of it, the force of it, compels them to speculate some kind of intelligence. They just don't want it to be divine. But that's for personal reasons. That's for religious reasons. That's a faith issue for them. So it needs to be some super, super duper intellectual creature who zoomed through here from galaxies far, far away and, and, did, and did what normally we would think God would do. Of course, the question then just becomes, you already know what it is. Who made them? Seems like they're pretty complex. Did, uh, did, they, did those super complex, amazing creatures just walk out of primordial slime? Do they owe their existence to, to pond scum plus... Uh, a billion features of luck happening in a row? Is, is that how they came about? Or did someone design them? And now we're in a vicious, infinite regress of causes. And I don't know, where does that lead? So you've raised more questions than you've answered. But you see an infinite being who can do anything, could do this. And of course we say, in fact, has done this. And you know, Psalm 95 also said that we are his creatures. We've been focusing on all the creatures of the world. But guess who's numbered among those? Raise my hand. Yeah, you're one of the creatures too. We, it said, are the sheep of his pasture. So in other words, he made us just like he made them. Well, wait a minute. That's kind of a, that's kind of a low view of us, that we're just creatures. Is it a low view? Is it a lower view? Then the view that by dumb luck and a billion happy accidents in a row, a bunch of million to one shots all falling our way, that a blind process happened to bring us about. And then if you rewound the clock and ran it a million more times, we wouldn't be here because, you know, anything could go. I mean, is that a higher view of us? The biblical view of us, yes, it says we are creatures. Not God's. But that's not all it says, is it? Because in the very beginning, in the creation account, it doesn't just say, well, God formed us 
So we're just nothing but mud people. He might, that's a low view of us. That's not all that's written there. It says, let us make man in our image. And so that in the image of God, he made them. Male and female, created he them. That's a very high view. Is there a higher view than the fact that God breathes a life into the human being and said, okay, you're different. All the other creatures are amazing and incredible and miraculous in their own way, but there's not a one of them that's like this one. This one is in my image. This one will think and feel and reason and be spiritual and contemplate the universe and do complex math, you know, and 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 do and do amazing works of art and solve really hard problems with really impressive solutions. This one will be like that because this one's got my stamp. This one shares some things that are about me, like me. This one I'll relate to personally. And this one will have this one will will come to know good from evil. And this one will have a will. This one will be different. And so consider this now in light of all of this as the psalmist says, if a being with the power to speak the universe into existence speaks to you, you best listen. Verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It's interesting he says that given that he's just laid out all this about the greatness of God and saying, yeah, he's your maker. And so if today he speaks to you, if he moves you in some way, if he puts it in your heart and mind, how you ought to live, if he convicts you in some fashion, if he draws you to himself, remember who he is. Uh, I wouldn't shun that. Not a wise man that would give that, give the stiff arm, would turn away. You know who's talking to you now. That's why he says, it says, do not put your God to the test the way they did, even having seen his work. Like, you, you, know, you know when people sometimes say, you know who I am? It's sort of one of those arrogant things that sometimes people of certain prominence will say, hey, you, you know who I am? You realize who you're talking to here? You know? Are you sure? You sure you want to? You sure you want to reject me? You sure you want to say that to me? You sure you want to? You know who you're talking. You know who you're dealing with. Sort of a way of pulling rank, and in a way, the psalmist is saying, if you hear his voice telling you, "This is my will. This is what I want for you. This is how to live. This is the truth," are you going to harden your heart from that and turn away from that? Don't you know who is saying this? Look around. Have you seen? What he's done, he's responsible for everything you've ever seen and known, including the the beating of your heart this moment. You're going to turn away? And so I think that is the message to really to the world, the entire world of wayward people, to be drawn back, to come back to the scripture, to remember that all of the things that make them write songs and poems and all the things that cause them to want to go out and retreat you know, into nature, that all of that was made 
by God. And God, and God is not the far off distant creator, but wants to relate personally to them, that he speaks right directly to each person. And that today, if anyone out there, those that we try to reach, if they hear his voice, and we pray that they do, and maybe they, maybe that comes through through us. But if they hear his voice, that's our prayer, that they would not harden their hearts. And this applies to the saints as well, because we who have walked you know, in this path for all these years, some of us a long, long time, and it could be easy to just grow accustomed to this, to almost just get insensitized, desensitized to the reality of what we're talking about here. And that, that you say prayers, you clasp the hands and you say the prayer, and the person listening to you, hearing you, is the person who made Everest, is the person who dug out the deepest trench of the ocean is the person who set the parameters, whatever they are, of the universe further than our telescopes can ping, you know, way, way out there somewhere. That person. That's who's hearing you. That's who we sang to. That's who you're talking to. And that's who relates to you. And that is who actually became flesh and dwelt among us. So today, if we hear his voice, and I believe we do, let us not ever harden our hearts. For the Lord is a great God. He is Yahweh Osenu. He's the Lord our Maker.